Welcome to Words of Grace, radio ministry of Elder Ben Winslet, pastor of the Flint River Primitive Baptist Church near Huntsville, Alabama. We invite you to stay tuned to today's broadcast. Over the next two weeks here on Words of Grace, I want to share with you a message that I delivered a week ago at Flint River Primitive Baptist Church as a part of our present pulpit series through the book of 2 Corinthians, and this message is on the subject of godly sorrow. I felt this to be a very helpful message for people in our congregation because it gave us the opportunity to unpack this concept of sorrow and the place of sorrow in our lives as it relates to mourning over our sins, regret, conviction, etc. We'll break this message into two different broadcasts and share it with you in its entirety this weekend, next week on Words of Grace. Today we want to consider 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 8. The fact that the Apostle Paul had written a letter to the church at Corinth, this letter calls them to sorrow over their bad behavior. However, that sorrow led to their repentance, which was a wonderful, beautiful thing that brought the Apostle Paul much comfort in his afflictions. Next week, we'll consider the remainder 
of that chapter, the fact that when we experience godly sorrow, and that godly sorrow causes us to repent, it has a life-changing effect on our lives. Here is this morning's message, part one of Godly Sorrow. As we continue our study through this book together, Paul writes this epistle to the church at Corinth. He is in a different place. The last that he has heard about them, they were in an absolute mess, and so he wrote unto them the book of 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses a number of threatening problems to that congregation. They were divided over who their favorite preachers were. In a very hostile way, you get the impression as you read through 1 Corinthians, they had loose discipline issues as there was an individual there who was having an affair, as it were, with his father's wife. And the church, rather than dealing with that in a matter of church discipline, which is her responsibility, chose rather to glory in that members were suing one another Instead of handling issues, disputes between brethren in the church, they were taking each other before courts of law. There was no distinction in the lifestyles through an abuse of Christian liberty between those in Corinth, some particular sisters in Corinth, and the women of the culture around them. You had people who were eating food in the idol's temple, leading other people to go astray in the church at Corinth, and... They had turned communion into a drunken feast for the upper echelon of the church, as it were, and not for everyone there. Paul would say, don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Why are you turning the Lord's house into some sort of a drunken feast? But rather, you should tarry for one another, respect one another, and you should not abuse the communion service of our Lord. Probably one of the most condemning things was the idea, the heresy that the resurrection was passed already, or that it was not a thing at all, that the dead rise not. There were a couple of different variations of non-resurrectionism in the first century, and that had infected the church at Corinth. So Paul writes 1 Corinthians, a very lengthy epistle, in which he confronts very pointedly the problems in that church. As we discussed last week, Paul is in another place, facing much affliction, He described it as fightings without and fears within. They were troubled on every side. They were afflicted. They were experiencing great tribulation. And here comes Titus. Titus, his dear friend, brings him great news. When Corinth received your epistle, your letter, they didn't become angry at you, though some of them were a little offended. What did they say of him? That his... Words are weighty, but his speech is contemptible. His bodily presence is weak. There were people at times in Corinth that didn't appreciate the Apostle Paul or his ministry. As they received that message from him, they repented, something that we will consider today as we study together the concept of godly sorrow. What does it look like? What is godly sorrow? Titus comes to Paul. He finds him. And he lifts his spirits up above and beyond the situation and the circumstance, so much so that Paul said he was exceeding joyful. He was beyond happy when he heard of the repentance of the church at Corinth. Why would that make him so happy? Well, he cares about the kingdom. 
But remember that he founded this church. It was his ministry that founded the church at Corinth. He labored there for a year and a half. Nothing makes a man sadder if he is a minister of the gospel than for a church that he has invested time, sweat, tears, and even blood in, as Paul would certainly experience persecution there as as elsewhere. I'm, I'm sure his time there wasn't all roses. Nothing hurts a preacher more than to learn that a congregation that he loves has fallen to error or suffered great persecution or that the numbers had dwindled down so that the church was at risk of dying, which can and does happen. When churches that we know and love close, and this church was at risk of losing its candlestick through the error practically and doctrinally that they had embraced, nothing makes a man sadder as a minister of the gospel than for something like that to happen. You can get the sense of Paul's heart as he wrote that epistle and At the same time, when word reaches him that the church has repented, that they have dealt with the problems, as we'll see in a moment, I would even add rather violently as a metaphor, it made him rejoice, it comforted him, it filled him with comfort, and he was exceeding joyful. He was overflowing with joy because the church that was at risk is now on more solid ground. She's not bringing a reproach upon the cause anymore, and she's not at risk of dying to the degree that she was at risk earlier. And so that lifts his spirit. It makes him happy. Now, before we read today's passage, I want to begin by asking you some questions that will provoke your thought as we go into it. When you do wrong, Do you feel bad for what you have done? Now, there are people in the world that when they do wrong and they are caught, they feel bad, not because they did something that was wrong, but because they were caught. A few years ago, well, more than two decades ago, I had the responsibility as I worked at a state park and park maintenance to drive around a crew of inmates who worked on the state park in the maintenance department. There was one individual there who had been arrested for, I think, a drug charge. And, of course, he's in this sort of a day camp, similar to work release. He was talking about when he gets out of jail, he's going to sell a bunch of drugs. He's going to buy him an Impala, and he's going to cruise around with a blunt in his mouth. And I said, aren't you, aren't you afraid that you're going to get caught again? And he said, no, all they can take from me is time. Well, I kind of like my time, don't you? My, My time's not worth that. But you see, he had no regret, no remorse for what he'd done. Most of the people that I had to supervise were in jail, were in prison, because of things that they did not feel bad for doing. They only regretted getting caught. Now, one of my dear friends, I had a dear friend on that crew. He and I worked together for years, and we actually communicated a little bit after he got out of jail. He drove intoxicated one night. He had an accident, and it took a woman's life. He lamented that for the rest of his time that I knew him. He had genuine remorse, and unsurprisingly, guess who that particular inmate worshipped? 
He worshiped the Lord Jesus Christ. He was Christian. He made a terrible mistake, and he had to live with the consequences of his actions, and it haunted him. He hated what he had done, but most of the people, the majority of the people that I had to monitor, they were not remorseful in the least. They wanted to serve their time and to go back into this world and live like they had lived before. But I think you, here this morning, if you respond to someone more sharply than you need to respond, If you said something to someone that you should not have said, if you lose your cool with your family or you lose your cool at work, I think you feel bad about that after you do it, not even because you get in trouble, but because something within you causes you to mourn over what you've done. Now, we know the theology behind this. When a person is born of the Spirit, what does God write upon his heart? His laws. And so you know right from wrong from the inside out. When you do something then that is wrong, you have what we call a conscience, and your conscience experiences pain, and that pain is good. Now, we can sear our consciences with a hot iron. How many of us have been desensitized to certain things that we hate that we're desensitized to because of what we watch on television? Violence. I watch these comic book movies, and people are dying left and right, and it's just nothing. I'm not bothered by it all because in my mind, it's not really real. But, you know, your mind does not separate between, oh, it's real that this person got shot in a movie, and it's real that this person got shot in a YouTube video. Your brain interprets it as the same, and it's not healthy to watch, and it desensitizes us. We can desensitize our consciences a little bit. We can't make them totally go away. When you do wrong... Do you feel bad for it? I think that we do. We sometimes call this conviction. We might today call it regret, but a better word is conviction. Our consciences convict us, and I've already used that word, I think, in another context today with reference to the convicts. A convict is someone who's been convicted of a crime and now is in jail. When our hearts convict us... What then do our hearts do? They cry out to us a guilty verdict. And we feel then what? We feel guilty. It's interesting the legal terms that we use to describe something so experimental, something that has to do with our daily experience, the way that we feel, our mood, our emotions. We are convicted. We have a guilty conscience. It hurts. And that is intended to teach us. This is conviction. It helps us make better decisions. It helps us live to the glory of God. It teaches us not to do that which is wrong. It's an internal witness that is of the Holy Spirit. Now, I mentioned the crew of inmates. I talked about you feeling a certain way when you do wrong and other people don't. Ask yourself the question, do all people feel this way when they do wrong? Does everyone feel bad when they do something that is wrong? No, they don't. If not, question number three, why do they not feel bad when they do wrong? Well, you and I can watch something on TV, and it might not sting as much as it would if we hadn't been desensitized, but there are some people in this world, the laws of God are not written on their heart. Please understand, if you're not born of the Spirit of God... You don't feel bad when you sin. You don't have contrition. 
The sacrifices of the Lord are a broken and contrite spirit. You don't have a broken and contrite spirit if you're not born again. There's no lamenting over sinfulness among those who are unregenerate. They enjoy it. They revel in it. The gospel is foolishness unto them. So until God changes their heart, they're not going to feel bad. And if you try to scare them with the law of Moses, God says you're condemned. They're going to laugh at you and say, who is Moses? Who is the Lord? And what is his law? Why should I care? But for those of us that are born of the Spirit of God, when we do wrong because the law of God is on our heart, we feel bad for it. Now, let's begin reading the passage. And again, the first few verses are what we will consider mostly today. Titus had come to Paul and brought him a message that filled him with joy. Verse 8, For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent. For I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were but for a season. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance, for ye were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. For behold, the selfsame thing, that ye sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you. Yea, what clearing of yourselves. Yea, what indignation. Yea, what fear. Yea, what vehement desire. Yea, what zeal. Yea, what revenge. In all things ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. That's the aggressiveness with which they confronted these problems in their church and dealt with them. Wherefore, though I wrote unto you, I did it not for his cause that had done the wrong, nor for his cause that suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear unto you. Why did Paul write what he wrote ultimately? Because he had to as a preacher of the gospel. This was a thing between him and the Lord. He had to do this. Therefore, we were comforted in your comfort, and exceedingly the more joyed we for this joy of Titus, because his spirit was refreshed by you all. For if I have boasted anything to him of you, I am not ashamed. But as we spake all things to you in truth, even so our boasting, which I made before Titus, is found a truth. And his inward affection is more abundantly toward you, whilst he remembereth the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling you received him. I rejoice, therefore, that I have confidence in you in all things. Verse 8, For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent. For I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were but for a season. Paul says that I made you sorry with a letter. If you don't know when we use the word epistle what it means, it simply means a letter. This is an epistle that he's referring to, and what he has reference to is his first letter to the church at Corinth. When he writes them this scathing rebuke, corrects all of their issues, wondering perhaps how it would be received. Though I made you sorry with a letter, I wrote to you, you received it, and it was very brutal to the point correcting your problems. 
Though I made you sorry with a letter, and you'll find a derivative of this word sorry later on. It's the word sorrow, sorry and sorrow. Though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent. I do not repent, though I did repent. That's an interesting statement, and I believe what Paul is saying here is that I don't feel bad that I wrote you a letter in which I corrected all your problems. But notice this next statement, though I did repent. I don't feel bad, but I did feel bad. There's a couple of thoughts on that. Some commentators assert that what Paul is saying is he did not regret writing the epistle, but he regrets that he had to write the epistle. That's probably part of it. At the same time, I at least take it in part to mean that he had some sort of heaviness of heart when he wrote such a corrective letter to them. From personal experience, if I have to write a letter or an email or I have to deliver a sermon that corrects a glaring problem in the life of a person that I love, I feel bad when I write it. I don't just feel bad because of the situation that caused me to write it. I feel bad writing it or saying it or speaking it. There have been about a dozen sermons over the years that I've been here that through the sermon, I develop a knot in my stomach that gets worse and worse and worse until the sermon is over. And it hurts. Literally, it physically hurts. There have been sermons I've had to preach where there was a knot in my stomach the entire time. There have been times when I felt myself growing too negative in a sermon because we really need to be as positive as humanly possible in preaching. I will feel myself take a negative turn, and I will feel bad about it the entire rest of the day just because it was negative. So I can sympathize if that is the sense. I don't regret it. I don't repent, though I did repent or I did regret it. I did feel bad about what was written. There are times that I feel bad that I have to hurt somebody's feelings by telling them that what they're doing is wrong and destructive and bringing a reproach upon the cause of Christ. When you have to correct your children, doesn't it just break your heart most of the time? I give you that caveat, most of the time. There are times when I'm like, oh, you need this. Go ahead, make my day. But most of the time, especially if it hurts their feelings too, doesn't it just break your heart to have to correct your children? Maybe the questions pop into his mind, when they receive this, is it going to offend them? Will they get mad? Will it offend them? Will they hate me because of what I'm about to say? Will they understand or misunderstand me? Will they misunderstand my intent in writing? You know as well as I do, when someone corrects a problem, the knee-jerk response that everyone has in their flesh and their carnality and their human nature is, who does this person think he is? Are they going to get mad at me? Is it going to upset them when I write this to them? However, when the word of their repentance came to Paul's ears, he knew his words as hard as they were, 
had been effective in bringing repentance to this congregation. And so, reflecting back on last week, he was filled with comfort, he was exceeding joyful, and he rejoiced. He was so glad God had used him to write the letter that he wrote. And I remind you, when Paul writes that, there's an element of this where it's Paul. Paul is saying, I. Paul is writing. He's referring to things they both know. He's using the vocabulary he has, the grammar that he has. But at the same time, who's the ultimate author of 1 Corinthians? Well, it's in Holy Canon, so the Holy Spirit is the ultimate author. Paul wrote that through inspiration. God used him in a very powerful way to write that, and it is indeed Scripture. He says, though I repented, I don't repent. For I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were but for a season. They were sorry, and we'll comment on that in just a minute. However, I want you to notice this, and I want to emphasize this for just a moment. For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent. For I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were but for a season. They were sorry. They sorrowed much. However, this was only for a while. Why just a while? First of all, they sorrowed to repentance. So this sorrow was temporary, number one, because when they were confronted for their sin, it made them change their behavior. The sorrow then was alleviated when? When they turned, they repented. If I am living in perpetual, habitual sin, after naming the name of Christ, and I can't figure out why I feel terrible all the time, maybe I ought to consider repenting. They sorrowed for a while... It was only for a while, a season, but their sorrow led to repentance, and the repentance led to the lifting of their spirit. They sorrowed to repentance, and so they're no longer sorry. But point number two, I want to emphasize this strongly for you today. While there is a place of sorrow, at the same time, God does not desire for us to live in perpetual sorrow over our sins. Let me say that again. God does not want you to live forever in sorrow over your sins. Their sorrow was only for the purpose of bringing them to repentance granting unto them repentance, leading them to repent. So let's emphasize this. God doesn't want you to sorrow constantly over your sins. Now, if you go about this life with your head down in constant agony, with tears, with weeping and gnashing of teeth, in discouragement and disgust over your own sinfulness, might I just stop you and turn you around? Because that is not God's will for your existence as His child. 
There is a place for sorrow. There is a place for contrition. Absolutely. But that is to lead us to the feet of Jesus, come ye that labor and are heavy laden, and, and he gives us what? He gives us rest. If you continue in his word, you'll be his disciple indeed. You'll know the truth, and the truth will make you what? Free. Rest and freedom are to be the words that describe your life as a follower of Christ, not weeping and gnashing of teeth, not sorrow. We sorrow, sure. We feel bad, yes. I know I'm wrong. I know God had to save me through offering His Son, but praise God He did. And so rather than living my life in constant agony, I'm to go about singing, Joyful, joyful, we adore Thee. God doesn't want you walking around all the time with your head hanging down in sorrow. If you enjoy the messages you hear on Words of Grace, consider this your invitation to visit a Primitive Baptist Church in your community. An online directory is available at marchtozion.com. Copies of this and other broadcasts are available for download on iTunes and on our website. To contact us, address your correspondence to Words of Grace Radio, 641 Moontown Road, Brownsboro, Alabama, 35741, or visit us online at flintriverpbc.org.